church. Well, good morning. What a joy it is to be able to worship um, our Lord Jesus together with you. If you're new here, just so glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. It's really a, a great time to sort of peek into Parkview. If you're wondering, what is this church all about? Well, this is the perfect Sunday for you to be here. In fact, this is the perfect series for you um, to sort of lean into what we're doing at Parkview. This uh, series, last couple of weeks, is a vision series. And and it's really the result of a number of months of, of prayer and discernment, of, of meeting with members and, and crying out to the Lord to show us direction. And uh, we believe that he has spoken to us and has provided with clarity where he wants us to go. And so over the course of the next couple of weeks, we are uh, just unpacking that together, walking through that vision as a church. And so in order to do that, um, remember, we want this vision to become a reality. We want to be a, a, a people who glorify God by making disciples of Jesus. And, and as we long to see that happen here in our midst as a church, um, the way we're approaching this series is we are coming together around particular convictions. If we want this vision to become reality, we must align ourselves with what the Bible simply teaches. Let's just be clear. What does God have to say about who we are and what we are to do here? So last week, we, um, we considered together why make disciples? If you have been around and paying attention in the last couple of weeks, you will see this idea of disciple making is just very central to the vision that we believe God is calling us to. So last week, we aligned ourselves around the conviction of why. Why is this so critical? Why is this so urgent? Why make disciples? And this week, uh, we're going to look at conviction number two in the series, which um, as I have just studied this passage and thought about this message over the course of this week, um, for me, it has been just such a wonderful, wonderful blessing um, to, to just be in this text with you all this week. And the, the, the message, the conviction that we are going to align ourselves around this morning is this, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? This is a Sunday where we can simply define the terms. What is a disciple? Well, Dallas Willard points out in his work, The Great Omission, that the word disciple, if you were to open up your New Testament and begin to read and search for that word, you would find it on the pages of the New Testament some 269 times, the word disciple. Well, the word Christian may be a word that most of us are more familiar with or use more regularly. The word Christian appears in the New Testament some three times. Three times. It was introduced precisely to refer to disciples of Jesus. The New Testament, as we read it, is a book about disciples of Jesus. It is written by disciples of Jesus, and it is given to us to read as disciples of Jesus. The, the disciple of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is not contrary to popular belief. It is not a robust, heavy-duty version of the Christian. It's not a deluxe model especially supercharged and empowered for the fast lane along the straight and narrow way. Rather, a disciple, he or she stands on the pages of the New Testament as the first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. This is why as we long to see God glorified in our midst, and the world around us transformed, making disciples is absolutely central 
to what we are doing as a church. It's central to our vision and our mission as a people. So let's define the terms this morning. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? Here, let's just give you a basic definition, one I hope will be helpful. A disciple is a forgiven sinner who's learning Christ and repentance and faith. What is a disciple? A disciple is a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in repentance and faith. I really like this definition. I really like this definition because it begins, the definition begins by reminding us that being a disciple begins with what God has initiated, right? A forgiven sinner. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are defined first and primarily by what God has done. And if we just take a step back in this series, one of the dangers that can exist for us as we consider the task that is before us to make disciples is that we can begin to define ourselves primarily through our activity and not God's. But what this definition does, what it reminds us is that our identity as a disciple is rooted first and foremost in what God has done. And then... Once we are grounded, once we realize that our discipleship begins as we are a forgiven sinner based on the work that Christ has done for us, all of life, all of our faith and our repentance, every step of obedience walks from there. We are a disciple. If we're a follower of Jesus, it's our life is the result of God's work. That's what it is. One of the, some of the key words that we're going to use throughout this series, and, and really not just throughout this series, but throughout this church moving forward, is to help us think about what it means to be a disciple, to help ground us and get us all on the same page. I like to think of discipleship in sort of three different ways. What a disciple is, is it's somebody who learns from Christ. Somebody who learns from Jesus, Right? Think about your mind. Your mind is actively engaged. A, a, a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus is somebody who gives their life to learning Jesus. Le opening up the Bible, discovering him. It's why we sing the song right before the message, show us Christ. That's our prayer. That as we open scriptures, that God would reveal himself, who he really is to us, and that we would be a people who learn from Jesus. But what we know about being a disciple is it's not just about engaging our mental capacity. It's, it's not just about retaining factual information. While that is good and necessary that we get accurate information about who Jesus is as he speaks clearly about himself, it's not enough to just know the facts about Jesus, right? We don't want just to engage our minds, but being a disciple is also someone who, who Jesus has gripped their heart so being a disciple is not just about learning from Jesus, it's also about having love for Jesus. A disciple is, is much more than just thinking rightly. While that is crucial and necessary, being a disciple is much more than that. Because see, here's the reality. You can know a lot about Jesus, and your heart can still be far from Jesus. This is a reality that exists in our world today. It's a reality that we see oftentimes throughout our churches. People who engage their minds, who want to learn a great deal about Jesus, but whose hearts remain cold and calloused 
towards Jesus. I can remember as a student at the university in the Pentecost, so I think I was maybe a freshman, and there was a big demonstration on campus. There were some individuals who had come, and they were holding up these signs. Perhaps you've seen them if you've been around, especially in the fall, the campus, that time of year. Um, individuals who wanted to, to represent the Bible, or so they said, represent Christianity, and they were, they were saying horrible things to people as they were passing by, and I can remember just stopping and, and watching, and there was a particular individual who was there who had a tremendous knowledge of the Bible, who stopped and began to engage this in the, the, these individuals and was challenging their, their portrayal of Christianity, their portrayal of Jesus. And this, this individual was able to speak Greek. They were able to recite all sorts of historical facts related to the Bible, but they were not a Christian, right? And, and many, of the, many of the facts, the information they had, they had right, but their heart had not been won by Christ. They had no love for Jesus. And that reality, like I said, exists not just in the world around us, but oftentimes in our church. That we can think being a disciple is simply thinking rightly. Wow, that is important and necessary. That's not where it stops. Jesus wants our hearts. So being a disciple is someone who lives, learns from Jesus, who has love for Jesus, but also a disciple is somebody who lives for Jesus. Somebody who lives for Jesus. See, if you're thinking rightly about Jesus and you have given your heart to Jesus and you love him and you receive the love that he has for you, the truth is your life will look different. Your life will look different. The, the way that you spend your money will be changed. It, it will begin to look, have kingdom priorities. The relationships and the way that you interact with those that God has placed in your path, it will begin to look different. Even the language, the words that come out of your mouth, the patterns or the habits, the behaviors maybe that you have been used to, when you've handed your life over to Jesus, your life becomes transformed. And so we become people who learn Jesus, love Jesus, and our lives, every aspect of our life, starts to look more and more like Christ. You'll notice in our mission statement that we talk about glorifying God as the whole church forming whole disciples. And what a whole disciple is, is somebody whose entire life has been transformed by Jesus. They learn Christ. Their head's engaged. They love Christ. Their heart has been handed over. And they live like Christ. Their hands are busy serving Christ. All of their life has been transformed. This is a picture of what discipleship looks like what a disciple is here's the deal though as we consider God's call on us Parkview Church to be a church that makes the disciples that makes disciples and glorifies God let me just say this hopefully it doesn't shock too many of you but our community does not simply need another church the world around us is not in need of just more and more churches. What our community needs, what our world needs, is more churches that look like Jesus. That's what our world is in need of. And so if we want to be a church, and this is, this is really what my prayer has been for us all week long, is that we would become a people, that we would be Parkview Church, a church that is committed to looking more and more like Jesus. If this is what God wants for us, 
then the question that should be turning over in every single, every single one of our minds right now should be this. Well, if that's what God wants from us, then what is Jesus really like? What's he like? If it is so critical that I live my life and that my life as I learn Christ begins to look more and more like Jesus, then what is Jesus really like? Well, I'm glad you're asking that question this morning. And if you weren't, I hope you are now. Because Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30 provide one of the most spectacular answers to that question. What is Jesus really like? If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them. It's already been read for us this morning. It's a portion of it. To Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. To help us answer that question this morning, what is Jesus really like? Let's just listen to Jesus himself. This is what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. In what many refer to as some of the sweetest verses in all of the New Testament, Jesus shows us what he's really like. Three things that just stand out in this verse. First, I want you to notice as Jesus speaks, there is an invitation that is extended. An invitation is extended. Look at verse 28. It begins, come to me. Come to me. At the very center of Christianity is a person, Christ himself. And he invites us, he invites you this morning even, to know him personally. This is not, and this is important to catch and remember, this is not some cold command. Come. This morning before I left, there was um, a scene that took place at my house. There was a small dog on the top of the stairs, and I was trying to leave to get to church on time. And I was trying to get the dog outside, right? I don't know if you've been in this type of position before, but as she sat at the top of the stairs, and I was at the bottom of the stairs, I tried, I begged, I pleaded Please make this easy for both of us. Get down here. Several times I said, Come, Rosie. Come. I commanded her. I demanded, Get down those steps right now. It was a command. As we read this verse, we might be tempted to think that's what Jesus is saying. It's not at all what he's saying. Jesus is not a cold, harsh demand, but rather this is a refreshing offer, a glorious invitation. When we go to Belize and drive on the highway, the highway goes through many small towns, and you know you're approaching a small town because there will be speed bumps along the path to get you to slow down. And um, along those speed bumps, 
there are always individuals standing on the side of the road. It is their opportunity to make some money, right? So they sell fruits and vegetables and all sorts of things. You'll see them as you pass by. You'll see individuals with pineapples in a hot, hot day. A fresh, there's really nothing more refreshing than a fresh pineapple. And you'll see them standing as you pass by and they'll be, their arms will be extended and you'll see pineapples in their hands and they'll be looking at you like, I got what you want right here. And all you got to do is come and get it. Come and get it. Jesus, with his arms open wide, offers for you and me precisely what we need. He invites us, come. Jesus has what we need. Only Jesus can lift the crushing weight of guilt and shame. Only Jesus can free us from our feelings of inadequacy. So we must simply come to him. God's great invitation, this invitation is echoed throughout the pages of Scripture and all of creation. Another famous passage in Isaiah 55, we find a similar invitation, a great invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. These very words are repeated again at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22. And as you hear this invitation, it is simply too good to refuse and too urgent to neglect. For the only thing, what makes it so sweet, the only thing that you and I bring to the table, as Pastor Thomas was saying earlier, is our need. Thirst, that's what we bring. Hunger. Come here, Jesus says. I have rich spiritual blessing and I have prepared. It's ready for you. And the best part is that someone else has paid the bill. Jesus, throughout his ministry, talks about him, refers to himself as the bread of life that has come. And those who, who eat will no longer be hungry. And those who believe in him will no longer thirst. In Jesus is real, lasting satisfaction. And all we have to do is get up and dive into his endless ocean of deep spiritual blessing. All we do is come, come, come to Jesus. What a wonderful invitation he extends to us. But as we look at these verses, we don't just see an invitation. We also read a description. He provides us a description, two descriptions. The first is a description of those who are invited. Who's invited to come to Jesus? What are the qualifications of those who are invited to come to them? What is their profile? And this is so kind of him to tell us precisely what he wants from us. We aren't left in the dark. We aren't left to simply guess or to sort of crack the code. He tells us exactly what is needed to come to Jesus. Look down. He says, all who labor, 
and are heavy laden. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a people who have been weighed down with rules and laws, regulations, one commandment after another, the dogma of the day. And it has become simply too much, too much for them to bear for themselves. Later in Matthew, Jesus would describe the religious leaders who are responsible for laying these burdens on the people. He would describe them. He said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Jesus is talking to a people who are simply exhausted, and they feel like a complete and total failure. Guilty as they felt the full weight of their sin become heavier and heavier with each law and each commandment. And it's these people that Jesus says, come to me. Give me the full weight of your sin. Unburden yourself to me. And it's precisely what he says to us today. Jesus peers into our heart and is saying to us this very morning, I know you are exhausted. And I know there are times when you feel like a failure. You may have just stumbled into this room this morning, barely making it. Barely holding on and feel like the bottom could just give out at any given moment. Tired and worn out. In need of a savior. And if that describes you this morning or any morning for that matter, then you are precisely who Jesus is looking for precisely who he's extending this invitation to. Jesus is not interested in a people who have all the answers or hold all the power or who want all the glory for themselves. Rather, those who come to Jesus do so, what he talks about just a few verses earlier, as a child. Look at verse 25. Just before this, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. He likens those who come to him, the profile, like a child. Children full of questions. They think they know it all. Looking for direction, long for safety. They are fragile and they're needy. They are a easily trusting people. And Jesus simply wants them, us to hurl ourselves into his arms like little children. Well, we don't just get a description of what the people are like, that the profile of those who come to Jesus. We're also given a description of what Jesus himself is like. That's what makes these verses so sweet. And it's pointed out by many, many biblical scholars over the past that, that this is one of the only places in Scripture where Jesus tells us about his heart. Where he teaches clearly and directly about his own heart. And these are his words. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus, this, the greatest revolutionary that the world has ever seen does not come with a sword and military power. Rather, he comes with his arms open wide and he offers healing and compassion. He is tender and humble. This is how he is towards those who, who place their trust in him. 
who, who fall into his arms. He says, I will be gentle and lowly. This is who Jesus is. He goes on to say that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. If you ever seen a, a, a yoke, like a big wooden frame, it would be connecting two animals. It doesn't look light. It looks ridiculously uncomfortable. This is a paradox. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus likens our discipleship to him as if we are yoked to Jesus. This is how we learn Jesus, connected to him. And as we connect with him, it's not a heavy, uncomfortable burden that he wraps around our neck and lays on our shoulders. Rather, he says his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Learning the ways of Jesus is not burdensome. Rather, it is life-giving. This is who Jesus is. As he allows us to peer into his heart, this is what he wants us to know about his heart. He's gentle. He's lowly. Third thing that we see, it's not just is there an invitation that's extended or description provided, there's also a promise made. We see the promise show up twice in the text. I will give you rest. We see it in verse 28 and again in verse 29. And you will find rest for your souls. The promise that Jesus makes is that when you come to him, he will promise you rest. He'll promise you rest. This is not just a glorious nap, as wonderful as that would be. Rest is a significant thing that is carried out throughout the Bible. In creation, God made man in his image intended him naturally to look like his father. And just as God worked for six days and rested on one, so his son was made to reflect him, to copy him, to follow. That day of rest, the Sabbath day, man was to walk with God in the garden. Imagine God and man resting in the garden as things were meant to be. It's a beautiful picture. It was a day that was made for man, the Sabbath day of rest, but it was also given as a glimpse to the future. See, the Father had completed his work, but for man there was still work to do. But as we continue to follow the story, we know that Adam fell, told that he rejected God's ways, that he chose his own path rather than following the one that God had clearly marked for him. And, and as a result, Adam ruins everything including the Sabbath rest. Instead of walking with God, Adam is seen in the garden hiding from God, trying to cover up his shame. Rather than seeing a restful Adam, we discover a restless Adam in the garden. And this is the story of God's people. Throughout the Old Testament, a people who are restless. That's why he gave them the fourth commandment. He gave it to a fallen, restless people. Told them that they were not to do any work, but they were set aside a day for rest, a day for the Lord. Externally, they were to cease from the tasks and they were to meet with God. Internally, they were to cease from their self-sufficiency and enjoy the grace of God. 
As you read throughout the Bible, Exodus, we saw in Deuteronomy this summer, that there is this promise of rest that lingers throughout the pages. God's people come to us and we, we see them through the scriptures as a restless people, a people in need of rest. And the promise continues. I will give you rest. The promised land, in fact, is portrayed in some ways as a, a land of rest. The promise continues throughout the Bible. When you get to the book of Psalms, you see, you see our humanity, who we are, our people who long for, who crave, who are in desperate need of the rest that God offers us. As we consider the rescue plan that God has for his people, God's rescue plan has always included this promise, the promise of rest. So with this invitation here in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus declares to his audience some 2,000 years ago and to his audience this very day, I am what you've been waiting for. I am precisely what you need. We're weary and heavy laden, but Jesus is not. He, he might be gentle and lowly, but he's also strong and mighty. And he alone is able to keep his father's commandments. He alone is able to bear the full weight of your sin and my sin. He alone is able to offer total pardon and forgiveness of sins. And he alone is able to offer us the rest that our souls crave. Jesus and Jesus alone can say, come to me and I will give you rest. Only Jesus can say that. And folks, this morning, this is exactly what Jesus is like. He's gentle and lowly. He extends to us the invitation that we have been longing to receive. And when we come into his presence, he never disappoints. This is who Jesus is really like. This is such an important text for us. Such an important text for us. In our focus on making disciples, it's absolutely critical that we recognize that this sounds like obvious math. So I am not trying to insult anybody here, okay? I'm just going to say that first before I declare this. Matthew 11 comes 17 chapters before Matthew 28. If you remember, we launched this service with the Great Commission. Jesus telling his disciples to go and make disciples. That he has all authority in heaven and earth. And go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He sends them out. This invitation comes 17 chapters before Matthew 28. And it's so important for us to remember that long before Jesus says, go for me, Jesus says, come to me. And I don't know about you, but I can often be tempted to think that my value, my worth, even in this church, is bound up in what I do for Jesus. That I only matter. I am simply a means to an end. And if you join us in this grand work of glorifying Jesus by making disciples, you might be tempted to think the same thing, to draw the exact same conclusion, that you're simply a means to an end. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus loves. He offers us his love. We are, as a follower of Jesus, a forgiven sinner. And then it is out of that amazing joy that we have because of what Jesus has done for us that then we are enlisted into the grand work of making disciples of all nations. This is what Jesus is really like. In his classic work, Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer asked a question. He asked about this idea of discipleship. He says, if we answer God's call to discipleship to be a disciple, where will it lead us? What does this path look like? And when he describes the path of discipleship, he simply uses one word, joy. It will look like joy. May God, he says, grant us joy as we strive earnestly to follow the way of discipleship. May we be enabled to say no to sin and yes to the sinner. May we withstand our foes and yet hold out to them the word of the gospel which woos and wins the souls of men and women. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? thinking to yourself there has to be another way listen to the voice of Jesus who's standing not far off it says come to me come get away with me and you'll discover what life was meant to be I'll show you how to take a real uninterrupted genuine rest walk with me work with me, watch me, see how I do it, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you, this is promised to us. Keep company with me, and you will learn to live. What a joy it is to be a disciple of Jesus. True life, true life. So what I, what I want to do here, we're going to have communion in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to give us a moment to reflect on this real Jesus and what it looks like for us to follow him. And so Don, if you could put those slides, that slide back up on the screen. If you remember at the beginning of the message, we described a disciple as somebody who learns from Jesus, who has love for Jesus, and who lives um, like Jesus, right? What I want us to do is I want you to, prov I want to provide you just some space here in the service to reflect. Um, re reflect on your relationship with Jesus. And maybe do so through these three categories. Uh, learn, love, and live. And as you consider your relationship, just for the sake of, you know, just this morning, 
Think of one specific area where you feel like God's calling you to take a step of obedience, to, to learn Christ and to look more and more like Jesus. Uh, maybe it's, it's learning Christ. Maybe it's been a while since you've been in God's word or opened up the gospels or, or really taken a deep dive into a study of Jesus's life. Um, what, what is God calling you to this week? Uh, Pastor Thomas has put together these, these uh, booklets to help us, to guide us, even in this practice. Um, I would encourage you, if you don't have one of these, are there some out there, Thomas? No, but there are some. If you get the weekly email, there's a PDF. You can just download it, and you can stay along with us, and we can learn Christ together. We have, out of the connection counter, there is a, an opportunity um, for you to meet and to get further connected and to not just be learning Jesus on your own, but be doing that in the context of a community group. Um, because the, the odds are, is as we are learning Jesus and those around us are also learning Jesus, we have a great deal to learn from one another. What's the step of obedience? Maybe maybe learning Christ is something that you need to take a step of obedience to look like Jesus this week. Maybe it's, maybe it's love for Jesus. You know, if I were to go home and tell my wife over and over again that I love her, but I have no interest in spending time with her, and I certainly don't want to talk to her, she would, she would have some harsh words to say for me. It wouldn't go well. We'll just put it like that. As we consider loving Jesus, even this week, what does it look like in your week to spend time with him, to speak with him, to listen to him? What are the things that you can do throughout the week to cultivate this love for Jesus? We think about loving him. And the third category is how do you live like Jesus? Maybe there's some steps of obedience you need to make. Maybe there's some hard relationships that you need to deal with this week. You know, when Jesus is talked about in the gospel, he's described as a man who's full of grace and truth. A man who can speak this word, who knows this word, who holds on to this word, extends it out to those, but who's also gentle and lowly in heart. What is it that you need to do this week to look like Jesus. Let's just take a minute and just reflect on that, and then I will come back and lead us in communion.
such good news for us this morning that uh, the life that God offers us, the true rest that he invites us into was ultimately accomplished by his work, the work of Jesus, the, the work that Jesus did by dying on the cross. And, and we're called as his people to never forget that. And as odd as it may seem, we're called to celebrate it because our rest is the result of his work. And so one of the ways that we regularly remember and celebrate the work that Jesus did on the cross so that we could have life is, is uh, the, the sacrament of communion. And so I um, encourage you to take out, open up the um, little, I don't even know what to call it, package and take out uh, bread and I'll lead us in a time of remembering what Christ has done for us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, let's take the bread together. same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of, of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes let's take the cup together church i would ask if you're able to please stand and i'll Close us in prayer. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much um, that you have precisely what we need. And I just confess that oftentimes we don't believe that. We may not remember that, Lord, but I pray that we would never forget um, the great cost that you paid um, so that we might enter into your rest. And I pray that just even this week, that out of joy, for what you offer us, Lord, that we would give ourselves to living lives that look more and more like this glorious, gentle, and lowly Jesus. That we would be a church who knows what Jesus is really like and that it would be our joy to show the world. We ask these things in your name. Amen.